0: Hey guys, I'm Caleb Giddings for Gunday Brunch, and Keith can't be with us this week since he is enjoying a vacation. So what we've decided to do is air an interview that I did last year with my good friend Hilton Yam of Ten Eight Performance. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure you like, share, subscribe to this video if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're watching on, or listening, I should say, on iTunes or Spotify, make sure you go ahead and leave us one of those sweet five-star reviews, especially after you listen to this hour-long interview with Hilton from Tenny Performance. It's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. It was previously aired. However, I think for a lot of you, this will be the first time hearing it. And also, make sure you support our sponsors, who will appear in a lovely banner right after I'm done talking, and also Guns.com, who is sponsoring the podcast and doesn't have a cool banner yet. But that is it for our intro. So I'd like to introduce you guys to Hilton. Hilton, tell people who you are, what you do, and uh, why we should care.
1: Oh boy! Wow, that's a pretty tall order. That that why we should care part. That's that's a lot of pressure. Well, uh, I am uh, a retired FBI agent. Did uh, 21 years here in the Miami Division, uh, as one of the largest in the FBI. I work violent crimes, and I uh, was on SWAT all whole time, and. Uh, In in my spare time, instead of sleeping and stuff like that, uh, I worked on uh, 1911s. And uh, so to kind of double back on that, I'd grown up uh, shooting uh, 1911s in Ipswich before the formation of USPSA. Yeah, I'm that old. And I started young anyway. But uh, when we got the the guns 1911s issued to us in the SWAT program when I was uh, just a wee SWAT youngster, I was like, wait a minute, I don't have my gunsmith with me for... Uh, everything that I'm doing. Basically, he was right there with me. He was like, hey, uh, something's wrong here. Do this. And then, you know, he would come back and I'd be ready for the next stage. So uh, I figured I should learn it for myself. And through the years, uh, I got to watch the the program guns uh, come from new in the box till when I box them up and send them away to get uh, turned into manhole covers or whatever. And uh, and that, that kind of turned into a thing. So I built 1911s and I started designing parts for them for my own company Ten Eight performance and uh, now that I am retired uh, I'm doing that full-time
0: that was actually a very comprehensive resume I uh, I remembered uh, talking to you about the fact that you shot ipsic before it was USPSA um and it was it's one of those things where that's kind of like one of those lines where for me it's always been USPSA I don't remember a time like I read about IPSC when I read uh, Enos's book and he was talking about IPSC and I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. What's IPSC? And then I was like, Oh, it's USPSA. (laughs) So it is an interesting, it's, it's definitely an interesting generational line. And, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is so when you came through the FBI's uh, training program, how surprised were you at how shitty everyone is at shooting?
1: Huh? That is, uh, that, that's an excellent question. Well, uh, we had a pretty intensive firearms program and uh, I actually had done a lot of shooting. Uh, well, uh, I don't, I used to carry Glock 19 uh, as a CCW uh, right around the time that I was getting in and uh, I was the second class ever to be issued a Glock. Uh, The side back of my head's in that 1998 Glock um, annual FBI gets the Glock or whatever it was. I got to find it, actually. It's here in the office somewhere. Um, So I hadn't really um, been as – I didn't have the depth of the shooting uh, skill and experience with a Glock, and it's horrendous, especially, remember, think about 1997 Gen 2 triggers. It's like stirring a box of rocks with a, uh, a stick with a really heavy spring on it. Uh, so it, it's a little bit of work. So I wasn't ready for some of the constraints because the uh, FBI's marksmanship program, uh, is, or rather the firearms is very marksmanship intensive. So we're shooting, uh, the qual course included 18 rounds at 25 yards, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, with, with, and, and on a time hack. So while by IPSC standards, not particularly difficult, uh, the time, you know, time hack USPSA standards, sorry, I'm date myself, but, uh, I didn't really put a lot of effort into doing that with my Glock because I only carried it as, as a defensive gun. I never shot matches with it. So I didn't think about that because uh, shooting, hey, here's your optic uh, compensated 1911 double stack gun. Um, hey, go take that 25 yard headshot. Yeah, big deal. we got a two pound trigger. Bam, done. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, shoot <laughs> shoot into here with uh, that Glock 23. Hmm. I haven't tried that before.
0: Slightly more challenging.
1: Yeah, yeah. so to, to bring that around to, to your question, because it was kind of a long answer, but uh, I, I like detail. I like the detail. We're here to chat. Um, it challenged me in ways that were different. Now, when we got to combat shooting, like, they are like, hey, who's this kid? It was kind of just mediocre like, at 25 yards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, uh, it, it balanced out because we had a lot of guys, um, former Ellie and Mill in my class, who were very good at the marksmanship stuff. And, uh, one dude, uh, was a buddy of mine who was into the action shooting. We kind of stuck out when it was time to do the action shooting. So it was pretty well-rounded. Um, so at the time that I came through being the dinosaur that I am, uh, it, it was, it was very, very, well, gun intensive for a firearms program. How about that?
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's nice to hear. It's one of those things where people you sort of get two extremes in the civilian side of how people think about military and law enforcement training paradigms. You either have the people who think that cops don't shoot at all and the training is all universally crappy or the people that think that cops shoot all the time and the training is universally good when obviously the reality is it's highly agency dependent. It's Mm -hmm. budget dependent. It's all of these things like, People are surprised to find out that Air Force military police, uh, which we call security forces, actually have we actually call we one annual we only qual annually, but we actually have in the regs a budget and ammo for quarterly sustainment training, which yep. is not something that e- that some regular domestic LE agencies do. We still can't sure. shoot for shit for the most part because units don't always use that ammo for. Good sustainment training, a lot of time it turns into let's go to the range and turn money. And we have to shoot this ammo because if we don't shoot it, we won't get it in the budget next year. But of some units do use it for good training. So, but that's, you know, it's those of us in the industry have always kind of held the FBI's firearms training program in pretty high regard. And I know a lot of civilian trainers use the FBI qual course as sort of a metric of like, if you can pass the FBI qual course, I'm relatively comfortable with you carrying a gun on the street. Mm -hmm, sure so you mentioned compensated dot equipped uh double stack 2011s which Mm, mm. in the context of 1998 they all had seymours mounted on them and were this long and looked like a battleship anchor
1: yeah six inch uh seven inch actually at the time that i was uh kind of getting out of that game uh the seven port compensator was kind of a thing so you'd have a five inch slide Skelt and I slide, maybe a, maybe a commander-length slide, you know, four and a quarter, but with a seven-port compensator. Because remember, Major Caliber back then was 175, or mm-hmm. major Power Factor, rather, was 175. Those... So I, I was shooting a, like a 188 Power Factor 38 Super uh, with a 124 grain bullet out of
0: a triple-port comp. Man, that thing worked really good. I bet that shit was loud. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. You know, the one gun, I I, I regret selling a lot of guns, but one that I really, really regret selling was when I was a million years ago, when I was kind of really first getting into this, I managed to pick up on Gun Broker, an old auto ordinance, 38 Super 1911 that had been tuned up by old school Wilson Combat before it was Wilson Combat. So it had that single port it was a it was like a 1970s era open gun basically because it had that single oh, nice. port compensator uh built into it it had a nice flared magwell on it and it was a single stack and that gun was super rad and i sold it because i was dumb that's like the only 1911 because i've had a, a gazillion 1911s and that one i really regret selling because god that gun was cool um mm-hmm. so to the yeah, uh,
1: we got all we all got one of those in our inner our pass that so we uh, i wish i'd kept
0: yeah so to the topic of double stack comped red dot equipped 1911s all so uh, a little background for people listening hilton i first met in person when i took your armorers course uh Mm. which feels like a million years ago um (laughs) and at the time 1911s weren't they, they weren't super popular they were very much a niche gun you know guys who carried them like carried them because they liked them and you had you know, onesie twosies agencies that issued them Uh, and 2011s were 2011s for people who don't know. It's basically, it's a catch-all term for a double stack 1911 Uh, and 2011s were reserved entirely for competition use. Like nobody was carrying these things. The only people that had them were people shooting USPSA and IDPA. Fast forward and you retire from the FBI and all of a sudden everybody and their sister's making 2011s. Right. Right.
1: Uh, yeah, so actually uh, towards the, the our 1911 program for the FBI SWAT uh, ended up uh, kind of subsiding. It, was, it kind of went out on a slow taper as the guns aged and died because it was the same, same number of guns for each team nationwide. So ours, I mean, they had, they had a hard life over 15 some years. Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 15 years of very high round count. Uh, it's not like, hey, we shot 50 rounds this year. Uh, no. You know, guys are shooting Six, twelve, fifteen thousand rounds a year out of those things and uh and then you, you, they move on and pass it on to someone else <laughs> so you get pretty dogged out but anyway yeah so i ended up uh finishing out my career with a glock 19m which as most folks know is uh, just a differently marked uh gen 5 glock but the 19m was made for a contract and uh, everyone was loving those things and i figured hey you know what glock is uh, I've come full circle and I'll shoot this in my retirement. I was doing experiments with compensators and, the, you know, doing the stuff with optics and, and honestly, no one cared. And then uh, I was watching social media. As you said, suddenly everyone had a staccato P uh, 2011. And I was watching the, a lot of the, the folks on social media who grew up shooting Glocks and well, by and large Glocks or other plastic type pistols um, talking about the thing, like they're waving around, So this is really cool. This is my new staccato P. It's it's black, and oh, man, it's really cool. And then they'd snap the slide shot on the empty chamber, which told me that they didn't come up in a culture of the 1911. So that alone, actually watching that onslaught of eye-gougingly horrible uh, and awkward, technically awkward uh, social media videos, uh, I contacted the company and said, hey, not for nothing, but uh, you guys are coming up big and strong in this uh, LE market. And uh, maybe it would help if you guys had an armor program and a guy on the uh, the tactical team, the, their sponsored shooting team uh, of, I hate the word, but influencer. <coughs> I <was laughs> choked on the word. Anyway, uh, you know, social media personalities, uh, someone who is a technical guy. Now, I can't grow a beard and, uh, you know, I don't have any tattoos or anything, but uh, I do speak the technical language of the gun. I can speak to law enforcement, and I can speak uh, to the the manufacturing side of things. So I, I can do a lot of things for you guys. So like, hey, that sounds like a great idea. And there it was, back in the midst of things with a 1911 derivative. So yeah, I thought I was done with them, but the market said, no, nope, we're going to suck you back in.
0: It, and it's it's been crazy to watch the... the the whole 2011 thing, because, you know, for people that don't understand the tactical side of the industry or, you know, which focuses on law enforcement and concealed carry use has been like hardcore, like it went from like Glocks are the best. And then it went to red dot equipped Glocks are the best. And these Glocks and Glocks started taking this strange trajectory towards open guns basically Mm -hmm. until people were carrying comped red dot equipped glocks with surefire x300s on them and then they started making concealed carry magwells and i was like am i the only one who is looking at an open at like a shitty version of an open gun right now right right um exactly and then i think it, it there was like this thing that happened and people were like wait a minute what am i doing all of this when i could just get when I can, why am I doing all of this work to get a super great trigger out of this gun that doesn't have a great trigger when I can just start with a good trigger? And I think, mm-hmm. and I, 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 I cannot figure out how we ended up with 2011s being cool again. I really can't. Do you have mm-hmm. any thoughts on how this happened? Because it really feels like it was overnight. Like it went from right. Glocks to I'm going to buy a Staccato or a Chambers Custom or a Triarch or you know, right. whoever else right. is making them. Sure, sure.
1: Yeah, the um, that has been a a topic that I have studied for some bit now, and in looking at it, uh, well, one in uh, 2017, uh, a, a corporate takeover occurred at then STI, which obviously is now named Staccato. Uh, as part of the rebranding, I know there's a lot of teeth gnashing, and for uh, whatever people may think of the new name or the concept of rebranding it, uh, they wanted to get away from that legacy where it was a company uh, which for the better part of 20-something years was totally happy with uh, handing out magazines with the guns that they knew didn't work. Yeah, They knew that they didn't work. Um, An actual, a a quick side uh, on this, uh, Chip McCormick, magazine uh, magnate, uh, now retired, uh, he was one of the original three guys in on uh, what we now know as the 2011 the modular uh, 1911 uh, frame kit and he told me because uh, we we were we were uh, pretty tight for some bit while I was coming up and he said yeah um I was behind the marketing and development and the you know had other guys as the uh, the technical side uh, for the gunsmithing stuff and I said hey we need to reinvest and purchase a better press to form these magazines because we got to make finish them all by hand to get them all to work. Because I'd ask them, how come the old mags used to work? Because we hand finished them all, which is what people are paying to do now. Mm-hmm. So you had this company which basically came out of that legacy where they knew from the jump, from that I mean, Chip was with them for year one only. Uh, they knew from that, 1992, that magazines weren't going to work and that company was okay with that. So when the corporate takeover occurred in 2017, they said, well, here's the biggest issue. You got this great shooting platform and it's a known issue. Everybody knows it, that the magazines don't work unless you invest another hundred bucks each magazine to tune them and, you know, sew them into the heart of a dead chicken and and, and get them to work. So they went first and retooled and created a gen two magazine. So after 25 years or whatever, Yeah, it was exactly 25 years, from 92 to 2017. uh, Finally, a Gen 2 magazine. Hmm. Uh, That alone created a great jump in the level of success for the company because now you could just buy a magazine. Uh, So if you were interested in having the gun for uh, tactical use, concealment carry, whatever, you could just buy it and not have to worry about doing the voodoo. Just uh, magazines would work. So that was a big one. And then the corporate takeover, they changed the way they uh, made the guns. So also instead of, hey, this is, uh, you know, this is most of the way there. It's, it's real nice. And uh, if we expect the users probably tear out a bunch of the parts and put in their own stuff, so that's okay. Uh, so here we'll make this and then uh, good luck. Uh, so that whole corporate structure and uh, everything changed too. They uh, took everything in-house as much as they could and uh, also uh, U.S. made materials and U.S. parts, which was not the case before.
0: Yeah, I remember the old... STIs had a lot of parts from countries that if you bought a 1911 wholesale from them, you wouldn't expect it to work. Uh, Correct. To uh, and we'll just you guys can you guys out there listening, you have Google, you can figure out which countries mm-hmm. we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, and it's it's been interesting, at least to me, it's been interesting because the uh, you know I've never really thought of a double stack 2011 as what you would call a serious duty gun Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you know they're the staccatos especially they're approved for duty use by the u.s marshals and you've got Mm -hmm. federal le using them uh lapd and la sheriff's department have got them Mm -hmm. approved for use as well and i'm like and again there's a little bit of bewilderment going on yeah yeah Yeah, well i had the same had the same sure but it's funny because, you know, when you talk about magazines, there was, and you know this, obviously, a lot of people who are listening to this had no idea that there was, for the longest time, an entire cottage industry developed to making uh, making your STI mags work. Like, there right. were dudes who, like, literally all they did was they sold springs or followers or they would, you know crimp your feed lips just for mm. like just so right. and all of right. this other stuff just to get those damn max to work right
1: you gotta polish the inside of the tube and mm. you know, all that kind of stuff
0: and i remember i was at a i was at a match at uh universal in Frostproof, proof and it mm. was It was raining because it was frost proof, and there was and this was the first time I'd ever seen somebody do this, and I forget who who it was, but there was a guy on my squad who, after every stage, would take his mags apart and brush out Mm -hmm. the inside, and then put his mags back together. And I was shooting a Glock 35, so I didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Hey, that." He's like, "I'm like, what are you doing?" He's like, "Oh, I got to clean my mags in between every stage, or the gun won't work." And I'm like, Mm -hmm. "Just jamming." stuff into my mag i'm like that looks right. like it sucks
1: yeah 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 and you had to wipe down the spring and uh, make sure it was clean if you dropped it in the sand and sometimes some of the mags you had to oil the inside of the tube so obviously that makes a disaster when you drop in the sand oh yeah so,
0: especially yeah. oh gross um yeah. so for people people so for people who are carrying these guns you know you've got i uh you mentioned something uh slamming the the slide on an empty chamber. And, you know, a lot of people have bought into the 2011 and the 1911 thing, and they don't know, and they, I feel like they wanna treat it like a Glock 23 or a Glock 19, and you can't, can you? Right, and you,
1: you, I mean, you could, but keep in mind, one is uh, $500 that is assembled at the factory, and uh, at the factory, as you you know, the depending on which factory you're familiar with, they have nomenclature where you got the assemblers, like the dude at Jiffy Lube, who's got uh, uh, basically one tool, like a hammer and, a, and, uh, and maybe a pin punch. And, and he throws the guns together uh, from uh, an array of parts. And then you have uh, some limited gunsmithing that might occur for like, uh, say, mid-level 1911 that you get for about 1,000 to 1,500 bucks. And then at the STI factory, there's um, Cadre of people with CNC machines, uh, um, you know, measuring stuff out. Uh, there's hand tools involved, and it, it's a bunch of high level fitting. So, yes, you could treat your expensive 2011 like a Glock, uh, but you paid for it to have that super nice trigger, level of accuracy, that bank vault feel. You know, like everyone's like, oh, you know, rack that back and forth, see how smooth it is. Well, go rack your Glock and feel how smooth it's not. Okay. Yeah, clank, 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 clank. Um, so if you want that as your end state, then you do whatever you want. Don't
0: listen to me, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things, and the reason why I brought up the the empty chamber thing is there's a number of videos of me from when I was uh, doing these 1911 endurance tests probably three or four years ago where I'll use your 108 performance 1911 evalu- extractor evaluation. Mm-hmm. And people who don't know the purpose of what I'm doing always get mad because they're like, you shouldn't, you know, fire around without a magazine in it and then let the chamber <laughs> slam home. And I'm like, Hey, I am, this is the, and I got so tired of explaining why I was doing it that I just copy pasted. Here's the reason why we're doing this because extractor function is sur- is super important. So for yeah. these people who have never carried a 1911 or a 2011 before and are new to the platform, what are some of the considerations like to change from Glock to you know, 2011 or 1911? Like, what are some of the things that they should be looking for in their guns, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's a staccato or, you know, a, uh, they bought a Springfield range officer or something like that?
1: Sure. Uh, I think the, the main thing, if you want to prolong the trigger pull and more so on a higher end gun like the staccato where the engagement surfaces are more refined and uh, Uh, And there's less engagement surface to get that nice trigger break uh, where you don't want to drop the slide on the empty chamber. The shortest answer for those with ADD and other short attention span issues is it degrades the engagement surfaces in your fire control unit. Uh, So those parts are not meant to bang around like that um, without the cushioning of uh, feeding a loaded round from the magazine, and also, if you do the quick math, that is not how the the trigger movement and the gun cycles when you because the other arguments, eh, Hilton's an idiot; he doesn't know what he's talking about, which is usually an entertaining assertion from Joe Bob sixty nine sixty nine, uh, you know, <laughs> posting from his mother's basement or whatever. Some guy with no Cheetah profile
0: host. picture, some guy with no right, profile right. picture and two followers is <laughs> like, oh, this guy's right. never worked on nineteen elevens, right?
1: So, but um, uh, when you are firing, your finger is still holding the trigger to the rear during the cycling of the gun and the subsequent trigger reset, which locks all those components together and keeps them from rattling around. Different than when you're posing for your Instagram photo with your phone and you got your lock back 2011, 1911, and you snap it shut, and all of the parts are basically free to rattle around under inertia. Mm.
0: That's a very, that's a very good answer. And I have ADD. So even I could follow that. Nice. Uh, nice. What about, um, so there's some other stuff too, like explain to explain to me, like I'm an idiot cause I am why extractor. So why extractor tension is so important with 1911s, and why it's a little bit of wizardry to get it just right.
1: Right. So in um, 1911, and pretty much that is the only gun that you could probably f- easily find at this point, which has an extractor, which is machined out of a piece of straight spring steel, uh, spring tempered steel. Uh, and then it is bent into a curved shape, kind of like the leaf spring on your automobile. Um, every other pistol design, and we will use a Glock because it's an easy one. Everyone's seen one, uh, uses a spring loaded extractor, which has a plunger and a coil spring. Any person with the 8-hour, well, actually, I mean, you can watch YouTube, uh, and it'll take you just a few minutes, can change out the extractor on a Glock. And there's no fitting, no no voodoo, because all the parts fall in uh, under certain geometry, and that tension that's required is with a, um, you know, very inexpensive coil spring versus a leaf spring that has a certain amount of bend in it. 1911 or 2011 uh, you got to put in just the right amount of bend and because there's so many different tolerance variations on and the way the gun is put together you got to make sure all the hook dimensions are right relative to the cartridge relative to the breech face it is not a drop-in thing and I know there's gonna be somebody inevitably who will see or, or hear this go well I dropped in there's such-and-such extractor, my gun it works good for you I'm glad
0: yeah sometimes so, statistically
1: well and also do you really know that it works because under if you dropped it in after having only watched the YouTube about how to take it out and then put one back in do you real are you really evaluating uh, properly that it works or not? Do you really know because you fired one magazine out of it right so you're telling the uh the Ferrari mechanic that your your vehicle is fine uh when you turn you just turn up the radio and don't worry about that black smoke coming out of the back of it But my vehicle's well, fine
0: well, and that's one of the things that people you know. Uh, that I think a lot of people who are new to the 2011-1911 thing don't necessarily understand is it's not like a polymer pistol, like a Glock or, you know, I've like, I've got like five Beretta APXs in this locker behind me and I can take any part out of any one of those APXs and put it in a different APX and it Mm -hmm. will fit and the gun will function just fine and I don't have to worry about it. Hey, if I bought two Springfield, and I'm not picking on Springfield, it's just they they make popular brand, they're a big pop, brand. Yeah. popular brand and a good brand. Like if mm-hmm. you had to pick a 1911 manufacturer that is probably you're probably going to get a good gun from, I would say Springfield mm-hmm. Armory. Yep. But if I take yep. two Springfield Armory 1911s and I take the extractor out of one and I try to put it into the other one, there's one no guarantee that it will fit, and there's no guarantee that the gun will work.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And the same thing uh, with like the thumb safety, same kind of deal. And that's a real big one. You could pull that one out and uh, maybe it stops uh, the trigger mechanism on one gun. Maybe it doesn't, you know, so uh, yeah, that it's a whole different, it was a whole different era of design uh, and manufacturing. The The technology wasn't, it was, well, technology was expensive and the availability of it, there just wasn't that much, uh, you know, at the turn of the, the previous century. And uh, now we have all, That technology. Uh, But uh, human labor is expensive now, and it was less so then. So uh, during wartime production, uh, and I've seen the gauges, they had go no go gauges for the parts. So if you uh, stuck the part in and it didn't gauge correctly, uh, they fit them or tension them or do whatever until it fit or they throw it out if you know depending what the case may be but somebody was sorting all those so at the end of the day per the gi blueprints you'd have what appeared to be a more or less drop together gun because somebody sorted out all the parts to make sure they're all the same
0: right Uh, another interesting thing that you bring up is modern manufacturing processes and techniques Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and people are always complaining about one specific manufacturing technique and it's because they're stupid and they don't know how manufacturing works, but everybody is always upset about metal injection molded parts Mm -hmm. and they're like, Oh, especially and even in, you know, my, on the revolver side of things, people are like, Oh, there's MIM in this, you know, Smith and Wesson famously changed their triggers from a forged piece of steel to uh, a metal injection molded trigger and a metal injection Mm -hmm. molded hammer. And Mm -hmm. one of the things people don't understand is that, a good MIM part is going to be a good part. If the process is done correctly, Mm -hmm. then you're going to have a good part. A crappy forged part is going to be a crappy part. It's right. The process is, yes, the process is important, but you know, and I think MIM, got apart a lot of its bad reputation deservedly from Mm -hmm. crappy MIM parts that were put into (coughs) Kimber um, to keep the cost of the guns down. Right, right.
1: Um, There's a stage when they brought the process, because if you look at the early Kimber guns, uh, I remember the American Handgun article when they first came out. And uh, MIM was hailed as the, the most amazing thing because they were able to get this gun, a production gun, with uh, a more or less fitted shaped upswept beaver tail, uh, the safety, you know, all the features that the Kimber had, which back in 1996 or whatever, was a big deal to have all these features on a gun that was a production gun at a production gun price. Uh, and it worked out. And then at some point, like basically right before the series two, so around somewhere in the 03 to 05 era, uh, they changed subcontractors for the MIM process and they brought it all in house for cost savings, not for efficiency or anything else. And exactly what you're talking about. So um, yeah, then it all went to hell Mm. because before that, no one cared that the stuff was MIM because those guns worked and they were good to go. Yeah. It's,
0: it was very interesting to see like, and, You know, people in the industry obviously we talk about old Kimbers versus new Kimbers, Mm -hmm. and you know how the old Kimbers were were great guns, and then the new Kimber, the newer Kimbers were Mm -hmm. well, they weren't so good. So let's talk about 1911 manufacturers here for a minute. So run down the list. We've got Springfield. Uh, If let me back this up, and I'll turn it into a question other than Springfield who i think we can all agree makes great 1911s and imports yep. crappy polymer pistols.
1: Um, <laughs>
0: well played, well played. Oh, i i've been on i've been on Springfield armory shit list forever because of because and it's funny and we we'll, i'll do a quick sidebar. So years and years ago i wrote an article called like the five most underrated overrated guns and it was pure clickbait nonsense. uh, And it had the Springfield XD as number one. And for a long time, that article ranked on the the front page of Google searches for Springfield XDs because I'm good at my job. Um, But what was funny was I wrote that article after... I shot an XD I shot one of the first XDM 525 competition guns and I liked it. It was fine for what it was for what it was it was actually a pretty good gun. I had actually shot I probably shot somewhere in between 10 and 15,000 rounds just through XDs. So th- that article put me on their shit list even though I'm like this is just kind of a joke guys everybody needs to calm down um and then I shot uh Couple of their 1911s as well. So anyway, uh, XT's no more XT talk. Uh, so we can agree that Springfield Armory, if you're looking for an off-the-rack 1911, that's probably going to work. We can agree that Springfield is, you know, good to go. Who else mm-hmm. is good to go? Like who else is, you know? Because uh, I don't want to be like, and we, don't, I don't want to shit on anybody, but like just kind mm-hmm. of like a list, n- not even a list, but like who's going to make a gun that I probably won't need to do extensive gunsmithing to to get it. Sure, to-
1: sure. Well, I like uh, Colt's, but specifically the guns, uh, and this is Colt's nomenclature, which has kind of spread into the industry as well. Um, uh, their Series 70 gun, which uh, in now at the Colt factory, that just refers to any gun without the Series 80 firing pin safety, whether it's an actual Series 70, you know, roll mark gun or not. But I like any of the, the Colts which do not have the firing pin safety. I'm um, not so much that I hate drop safety as, as a concept, you know, I, I think you should be able to drop your guns and, and it'd be safe, but uh, I don't like how it's, it, it, it doesn't belong in a 1911 because uh, it doesn't physically belong in there. It makes a trigger linkage feel horrible. Uh, and depending on how the gun and its parts are timed together, uh, which can change as the gun ages, because uh, you're moving from uh, linking the trigger to uh, the top half of the gun, and that's affected by slide to frame fit. Um, so you could get a series 80 gun, which goes bang one day. And then, uh, you know, sometime later doesn't. And that's kind of a drag.
0: Well, that's exciting. So Colt yeah, series seventies. Yeah. Uh, and if you guys go right. to Colt's website, they actually have on their website, you can look at, you can sort out which ones are series 70 from which oh, cool. ones aren't. Um, okay. it take it takes a little bit of work on the way to, uh, to kind of figure it out. But I do want to, I do want people to know that you can get a third, a stainless steel 38 super in as a series 70. So that's nice. really cool. Um, <laughs> so we've got, uh, yeah, so we've got so, Springfield so and Colt. That,
1: um, I like Dan Wesson. Uh, I always yeah. have, uh, their small parts quality is exceptional. There's uh, to my knowledge, uh, having seen the guns up close and inside, uh, they're, it's all machine bar stock parts uh, so no, no MIM, no cast uh, just top of the line stuff and their execution has been good I've seen a uh, number of their guns in uh, oral armor classes, crack them open, you know, and uh, the build quality is really good, those guns uh, worked, uh, taught a school recently uh, with a, a large quantity of Dan Wessons in it and uh, they worked really well or uh, they 're built real nice uh,
0: for reference too, for people listening, I also really like not that you know my opinion should carry any near uh, near as much weight as Hilton's when it comes to this stuff. I had a Dan Wesson Valkyrie commander, which was their nine mil commander, and that gun ran like a sewing machine it went it ate two thousand rounds of Every type like all kinds of ammo including some really garbage reloads that I had and it ran and with Wilson combat ETM mags, it ran phenomenally well and that was probably that of all of the 1911s that I've shot, that one was probably my favorite in terms of shootability, build quality, and as a carry gun. I was so bummed when I sent it back to Dan Wesson. I was like, <laughs> Oh! They're like, Well, you can buy it, and I'm like, Yeah, my writer's price is still $1,100. So that is one thing I should note about Dan Wesson. It's not cheap, guys. You're gonna be, mm-hmm. you know. And I think for would well, you you're agree paying that like...
1: for that quality though, mm-hmm. you're you're getting what you pay for because you're paying for premium quality components and somebody who assembled it uh, properly.
0: So, and that's kind of one of the things that people need to get your heads around is if you want one of these 1911s, that's probably going to work pretty well, that you're not going to have to do a lot of nonsense to, you can expect to pay at a minimum a grand, you know, for Mm -hmm. it. Like that's your, if you're getting into this, your starting point and is a grand and really you should probably be thinking more like 1200 to $1,500 yeah absolutely agreed um yeah a
1: thousand bucks uh i'm not real up on the market but um as far as market pricing and it's weird now anyway um yeah a thousand bucks pre-pandemic that would have been definitely the bottom bottom floor and potentially like a thousand bucks would have gotten to you one of those cold series 70 reproductions which is pretty bare bones just like it was in the old days mm-hmm. so you're gonna have to expect to do a bunch of stuff to it if you really want to do a lot of work with it um so yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you in in 1911s, you will largely get what you pay for. Uh, I have not seen other than you know a couple oddities where you're paying for somebody's royalties or or, or
0: whatever oddness.
1: Uh, you're going to get what you pay for as far as the grade of, of parts and the labor that went into it.
0: So staying on that 1911 train, a question I frequently get asked is, what about? ruger's 1911s because and the reason i get asked this question is you know ruger obviously makes one of the most bomb-proof revolvers on the planet and they have the advantage unlike some of these other companies of being able to own the entire manufacturing process of this gun from bear you know from uh casting the frames and slides that in-house all the way up through small parts because they own all of their small part manufacturing mm-hmm. as well okay And they're affordable. And I now the problem is I get asked this question. I'm like, you know, honestly, I, I stopped doing my 1911 tests before I ever got to Ruger. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Have you ever, have you cracked any of them open or seen them?
1: Uh, Yeah, we had a number of them in the classes when they were fairly new. If I recall, though, the slides are bar stock. The frames uh, absolutely are cast. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind. Yes, the slides uh, are, I'm sorry. Yeah, the
0: slides are bar stock. That's my bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so for listeners slash viewers, um, the casting process, uh, Ruger's casting is pretty much uh, at the top of the, the game as it goes in the industry as far as casting. Because, uh, well, we'll not make any uh, industry enemies, but there there's uh, a well-known uh, 1911 derivative manufacturer who also casts frames, and uh, the porosity and surface finish of their frames kind of, tells you that they're not at the top of the game uh but the the way uh, yeah since Ruger owns their own foundry and they also cast for Caspian uh they do really really high quality uh, castings where honestly if no one told you you might not necessarily know that it was a casting uh, because you don't see the voids and the holes and the dimpling mm-hmm. and the you know crudeness of surface that, that's so common with cast stuff um the guns that we saw in class worked they were put together well um they had uh if I recall Novak uh dovetail front and rear sights uh they they work they were uneventful uh you know it's kind of kind of just like everything else ruger does where it is functional Uh, maybe you're not going to go run around and parade it down the street because it's kind of no frills or whatever um they're getting it done uh i have not kept up on what they're doing with them now but the ones i saw when they first came out were fine they're solid
0: so they do they actually have done uh they this year they opened up their um Oh, God, I'm going to get it wrong. It's not performance. It's their. So, Ruger started their own custom shop. They're like an in house, just like Smith has their in house performance Mm -hmm. center and stuff like that. And one of their launch items was uh, uh, Doug Koenig Special Edition 1911, which people people blinked pretty hard at that because I think it was $1,500 for a Ruger 1911. But Mm -hmm. uh, the it all seemed. It all seemed pretty solid. Again, haven't shot it. Don't know the. Uh, my reports are secondhand. What I can mm-hmm. tell people is that the Ruger Custom Shop Super GP100 in nine mm their eight-shot nine mil revolver, is really nice. It's very thoughtfully put together. Every. It's like it is very much a product improved GP100. All of the mm-hmm. engagement surfaces are a little bit cleaner. Uh, one of the important things for uh, GP 100s is to help clean up the trigger pull is if you shim the hammer and because all of the parts are cast, you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, variance, you know, in your frame to your hammer and all of that stuff. So your regular off the line guns don't come with shimmed hammers and your, the, uh, custom shop guns that I have and the match champion guns that I've got do and they came with extra shims in case you wanted to like in case it needed a little bit more on the left or a little bit more on the Mm. right so my hope is that that level of care and attention is also going into their special edition 1911 um but yeah unfortunately i have not shot the Ruger 1911s and so for all of the people who wanted to know what we thought about Ruger 1911s the answer is well they're probably fine maybe Mm. They have been fine. How about that? Perfect, perfect. So, and moving on to other manufacturers, uh, there are two guys, who, two companies that make 1911s who use proprietary extractor designs: Smith and Wesson and Sig. So, tell us about the uh, the Sig two piece extractor and why it's the devil. <laughs> If you guys are just listening to this, he'll just lean all the way off camera, like he was about to fall Oof. over. Oh, look, look at the time! I got this thing
1: at a place with the people. Yeah,
0: I gotta go. Uh, I don't want to talk about this extractor. Gotta go.
1: All right, let's, so let's let's actually just um, lump the concept together uh, and remove it from the brand because there there are multiple brands trying to execute this. Uh, which of course you already called out uh, Sig and I'm sorry uh, Smith, uh and Smith and Wesson, right? Um, so the external extractor because if you rewound and listen to the beginning of the podcast where we're talking about the leaf spring extractor uh, design of the 1911, you go, well, why don't it's modernized? It has a, a pivot pin, a fixed claw, and then a coil spring that powers the other end, much like, um, well, a lot, of, a lot of service pistols, uh, including the Smith & Wesson uh, semi-autos and so forth. Uh, so why doesn't that work? Well, unfortunately, like trying to reverse uh, engineer things into a 1911 that don't really have room in there, for example, like uh, firing pin safety, as I already talked about, uh, an external extractor is one of those things, especially on a, and I'll speak specifically to a 45. Um, because those are the most common versions, um, when the barrel links down. So if you're, if you, for listeners, if you're listening to this and your gun is basically this, like, uh, you know how the Keebler elves have that magic tree where magic happens in there and cookies come out. If that's basically how your gun is to you, magic happens in there, noise comes out one end, um, you, you're maybe fast forward through this cause you're going to stroke out. But uh, I'll, I'll make it as brief as, and clear as I can. When you, If you take a look at your safe and empty gun uh, and you tip the slide back, move the slide back a little bit, the rear end of the barrel moves down, it links down. Think about if there's a cartridge in there, it is pulling the cartridge down relative to the breech face each time the barrel links down. And that is on its way to the back for the cartridge to hit the ejector to eject. The extractor has to hold onto it during that trip or else, well, then the trip is a little irregular uh, or maybe not a very secure trip. In a regular 1911 extractor, it sits low enough because it's got a little tunnel inside where it lives. Um, It's able to sit low enough where it is um, able to hold on to that cartridge for the whole trip, even after the barrel has uh, pushed it down uh, farther on the breech face. However, The external extractor, can only you can only put it in a a certain spot because otherwise you'll end up cutting the slide in half. Look at the outside of your 1911 slide because it's got to be outside that uh, spot where it is cut down for the ejection port window. So if you cut it too low there, the slide will crack in half. So you can only put it so far. When you link down on an external extractor, the barrel basically pulls the cartridge almost completely off the... Extractor hook.
0: Hmm.
1: So the little trip
0: back to the ejector.
1: Sometimes it goes. Sometimes it doesn't.
0: Sometimes it works great. Sometimes it doesn't work so great. Well, and that right. is again. That's you know a very concise explanation for a lot of the the gremlins that live inside 1911s that make it all work together. Um, other thing. Other considerations for 1911s. You know, you've said in the past that the further you get away from five inch you know from the government model design the more likely you are to have problems is, is that still true and does that apply with like 2011s which were you know designed to be space magic in the first place
1: <laughs> um, to degree yes because the the design is engineered to have a certain amount of slide travel and the slide velocity so a uh, five inch forty five Slide moves at a certain rate and at a certain distance. If you get a commander or one of the officers, the little itty bitty things, the slide is really, really lightweight and it doesn't go as far. If you look, uh, if you, you know, can't figure this out, lock your 1911 open and look and there's this little round button thingy at the back behind the magazine well on top of the frame. That's the head of the disconnector. You can see that on a 1911 government model. You can see less of it on a commander you barely make it to that thing on an officer's model. So um, the less slide travel you have and a lighter slide, the faster it goes. Your magazine can only push the rounds up at a certain rate because of the spring and 45s. And uh, so yeah, you start doing the math where one part, the top part goes faster than it's supposed to, the magazine's still only going at the same speed. At some point, it's gonna, gonna fail.
0: Well, that makes so, perfect sense. Yeah. So yeah. with, uh, moving back to 2011, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of there, there's is staccato the only company that's like really making a commercially viable mass produced double stack 2011 right now. Cause I feel like the rest of the ones out there are definitely more towards like, obviously chambers custom is, it's exactly that it's a hand-built custom right, gun, easy,
1: custom custom yeah shop, yep. uh
0: and i think triarch is also you know hand-built custom guns as well and then you have staccato out here like just you know churning them out as fast as possible mm-hmm.
1: yeah so there's differences in there and you actually kind of have it layered where uh, chambers custom of course he's a uh, uh, very small uh, super high-end uh shop where the guns are hand built one at a time by him and his his small crew so that's a whole different product so whatever you're getting out of a shop like his uh is going to be can't be evaluated against uh something that you know something else Mm -hmm. Uh, staccato is the only company in the game uh let's and we're discounting stray slash infinity because they're strictly in the competition market Right. Um, so Staccato is the only player in the game, which I don't think a lot of people understand. This they're the only player in the game who's actually a manufacturer, and not a custom shop or an assembler of other people's parts. Ah. Every single they're they're machining those slides and frames and the barrels in house from their own sourced materials made in the U.S. source materials, um, machining or uh, having uh, contracted uh, shops machining all the parts to their spec. All right. Versus say, hmm, hold on, I need to pause for dramatic thought here versus say uh, having a gun, which looks maybe super cool uh, for whatever reason, because it's painted up nice or something, but is composed of all parts that you recognize from the Brownells catalog. You are (laughs) not a manufacturer then you're an assembler or a builder
0: and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that if you're buying good parts and building them correctly
1: sure, sure. but that is that is a, a inherent difference though as industry guys which we know that is a difference versus hey uh i built this gun i bought all the parts they're premium grade i assembled the gun did the build process you know everything is cool fitted everything yes that's that's absolutely a legit and viable product but it is not to be confused with hey we manufactured all of this Every single part in here is to our blueprint. We did every single part of this down to the pins.
0: That actually reminds me. I wanted to ask you about the not twenty eleven nine millimeter double stack nineteen eleven style gun, the Wilson Combat gun, because it's mm. it's definitely okay. not. Yeah, it's definitely. I was co- afraid
1: you're going somewhere else because there's another um, one. Because twenty eleven uh, actually staccato trademarked that. Um, Oh, good job. So, yeah, it makes it a little tough. Uh, I, I like to think of it as double stack 1911 double stack modular. I know it's a bit of a mouthful. I'm going to make it a thing. I'm, I'm totally making it a thing. Yeah. But that is actually what it is where you have a modular plastic bottom and a steel chassis up on top. Uh, there is a double stack, a couple double stack 1911 family guns, which are
0: all steel. Well, we could. Uh... I, I could talk about the the old pair ordinances for a while and but let's talk not. about how they But let's not for a while for like two minutes they were re- they were like the hotness. And I had then one. I had one. Yep. They're like, these are dog shit now. Um it took a took a lot of work to get mine to work. But no, so what I did want to talk about was the, oh, yes, the Wilson so the Combat Wilson. EDC yep. it's the EDC X nine. So and that yep. is they basically started and you know wilson combat everybody knows well if you don't know wilson combat were is you know probably the best known 1911 custom gunsmith Mm -hmm. um and so uh, are you how familiar are you you with the edc gun have you worked with it played with it taken the Um, taking apart
1: i have not taken it apart but i'm familiar with what it's like inside we have a mutual friend who uh, has one He's been in a number of my classes mm-hmm. uh, with his EDC9. Um, the thing that I usually want to impress on people when they ask about that and on it is while it has a strong 1911 um, lineage, uh, it is uh, it is a unique gun because it uses unique extractor, different barrel linkage, uh, brand new proprietary magazine, and the grip is Only vaguely 1911 feeling. I feel like it's kind of a little bit of a cross between a 1911 and a Beretta 92 because I know Bill Wilson's
0: kind of a big fan of Beretta 92s. Mm -hmm. He kind of brought them uh, back into being cool. He did. Uh, You know, in many ways, we have Wilson Combat almost to thank for the current... 92 revolution that we've got going on because they did their special editions and they sold like hotcakes so then uh, Ernest was able to do the ltt guns and those all sell mm-hmm. like hotcakes and now beretta itself is like wait a minute we can make more money if we just put some nicer touches on these guns then we keep yeah. all the money instead of yeah. some of the money but it's great because you know Right, if you're a 92 guy, and I feel like there's a lot of crossover between 1911 people who like 1911s and people who like 92s. Um, if you're a 92 guy, this is the best time to be alive because you can get a high quality gun from Beretta itself, you can get a high quality gun from Wilson Combat, you know, really super high quality gun from Langdon Tactical. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, sure. I did find a uh, just for oh for reference for people listening, I did find a uh Wilson Combat EDC X9 uh with the four inch gun on Grab a Gun, who is not a show sponsor, but they're cool people, uh for oh god, twenty nine hundred dollars. So that's that's a big chest full of money right there. Three grand for a gun that is really i've shot my uh, our friend oh, really uh, who has nice. one i've shot his gun and it is a really nice gun and also i should point out that he's carrying uh staccato p right now so you know i don't that and that's not a knock on the, the edc x9 it really isn't it's i feel like sometimes people forget about it with all of the 2011 stuff that's been going mm-hmm. on lately mm-hmm. they're like oh yeah this gun exists and then they look at the price tag and they're like i'm happy that gun exists but i'm not buying it right
1: also another distinction dovetailing into what we talked about as far as uh, manufacturing versus being a boutique shop who's assembling everything. Uh, Wilson kind of bridges the gap because he's got the juice where he is obviously manufacturing everything uh, and you're also getting a high-end smithing shop that's putting that stuff together so it's uh, you you are indeed paying more for something like the EDC-9 or if you bought uh, a CQB or, or a tactical super grade or whatever uh, which all oh, by the way is super super nicely executed 1911s, um, you're paying for more, not just because the Wilson name, but because it's going to be a good gun that some dude uh, or series of dudes slaved over um, using parts that they all specced and manufactured in-house. So it's it's next level in pricing because it's next level in quality. It's legit.
0: So there you go, guys. If you want to, you know, really spend some money on a 1911, get a Wilson, cause it'll be great. So Speaking of, uh, building 1911s, are you planning on getting back into, uh, making guns again, or are you going to stick to it? <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. I didn't know this was a comedy show. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, people, no. I'm just asking the questions that people want the answers oh, yeah, to.
1: Yeah. No, people are going to ask. People have asked. And, um, Just the practicality of it all is that I don't see how I, I, you know, hadn't had a day off all calendar year until I forced myself to take some time off at Thanksgiving um, because there's just that much going on. The the company is very small, uh, largely me uh, with a couple, couple support and uh, I, I do pretty much everything you see. So if you order something and you write a nice note in there, I'm writing it by hand, a reply. Uh, or I've dictated, because uh, if you go, oh, hilton has got girly handwriting and there's hearts on it, or I dictated the, the, the you know, the response. But anyway, uh, I, I'm I'm in every level that I am uh, designing all the parts that we sell, uh, I QC all of them personally, uh, so I, I'm in it. And also that YouTube channel, I recorded and played all the music, I filmed the thing, uh, I edit it, so... Uh, oh yeah, and I'm you know, i doing all my own social media too. So there's a lot of stuff on the plate and building guns, is not on there. There's, there's no room for it. No, I need that, another plate.
0: <clears throat> right, you need another plate. You need like a whole nother Hilton is what you need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, speaking of 10 performance and the parts that you're making right now. So right mm-hmm. now you've got a pretty extensive catalog of Glock parts and uh, M&P parts uh, as well because you used to like... Back in the day, uh, M&Ps were really hot, and people were buying them, and that market has kind of tailed off, would you say?
1: Yeah, yeah, I would say – Basically, around the time I retired and really got back into the industry, because I kind of had to be out for a little bit uh, prior to my retirement in 2019, um, the MP market was on the wane and I didn't know it. So, uh, actually, sitting on a bunch of MP stuff from pre retirement, uh, the market absolutely just fell clean out of it. And for a while, it was where it was a close second to Glock stuff, uh, and now it's not even a distant, I don't have enough fingers. Um, you know, so it's way out there. Uh, the prices have come down on it. The gun, the platform hadn't evolved the way that I would hope. Even with the 2.0, um, still accuracy issues. The the trigger mechanism is what it is. Uh, so, you know, if you drop in a whole bunch of Apex parts and stuff, you, uh, it's like a plastic 1911, uh, old school. So, hey, the extractor it might work, might not. Well, Apex has got one, so we'll put it in there. Uh, the Gun may or may not group with ammo oh apex will fix that they've got a got a setup for that uh trigger kind of blows well apex will fix that and the uh, sites are kind of marked. well thankfully at least we can fix that for you there you uh, go so, but uh yeah i mean if you want to get into it where you customize it the platform's still viable so like if you're uh, a ccw user or even uh, an leo who uh, is forced by department policy to buy a gun but they got some latitude it's not like it's going to blow up on you and kill you, but the, the way the market is shaped out, uh, Gen 5 Glock and the SIG 320, I feel, uh, have basically eaten the m and lunch mm-hmm. uh, as far as coming in with a gun that comes right off the shelf, that has a superiority in many different facets, uh, and then uh, aftermarket support for Glock obviously is
0: tremendous. Are you going to start doing uh, aftermarket stuff for the 320 since it appears to have eaten everybody's lunch?
1: It really has. I, um, I have uh, sights right now. i have got uh, regular like number six, number eight front rear combos for the iron sighted shooters. And then uh, the optic height sights for obviously the optic um, working on base pads for it. And at that point, I think th- those are pretty much where I usually hit. I do sights and base pads for each platform that I look really hard at. Uh, and obviously, with the uh, DoD into the M17 and M18, the gun's not going anywhere for a while.
0: Yeah, that's very true. Uh, it's a shame too because the M18 a sack of crap, and I hate it. Um, <laughs> <coughs> sorry, no, it's I'm I I had this realization that it, that I have become that guy who when the government adopted the Beretta and he was like oh this gun's a sack of crap and i hate it i just want my old 1911 i'm now <laughs> that guy but for the beretta not the not the 1911 i'm like oh this stupid sig sucks and it's light and it triggers crappy because tri- I, I will say this all of the mill m18s that i've gotten my grubby little armor hands on have had garbage triggers just so are they are they heavy are they crunchy or
1: what what's uh what's or uh or indistinct and grindy
0: they're indistinct and grindy like so there's the ones that i've messed with there's obvious take up and then you hit a wall and and the, the take-up is kind of, take-up's kind of grimy. The take-up it would be like, it's like dragging a stick across gravel for the take-up. Then you hit a wall and you stomp on the stick and you break it and then you take the broken stick and drag it through more gravel. And that's how mm-hmm. I would describe the uh, M18 trigger. And, you know, even a... Uh, people hate on the Beretta for a lot of reasons. I don't think any, I don't think most of them, Probably the most reasonable criticism of the Beretta is it's huge. It's big. And if you have yeah, I, I, tiny I can't hands, get my hands around one, it's a tough gun to shoot. I accept that criticism. That's why the Vertec exists. We should have just done that. Anyway, um, but even. Even the the one the criticism of the Beretta that I don't think was valid was about the trigger, because guns straight from the factory had a really good double action triggers, and the single action trigger on a brand new on a stock you know factory gun was always a really great trigger, like a good shooting trigger. And I just, to me, I think the I think the M18 is going in the wrong direction as a shooting gun but it's a gun that makes sense if for general issue you know Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see so we've talked all about 1911s let's talk about Let's move off of the gear side and onto the shooting things side. So you and I were okay. recently in a video that got very popular on Instagram oh, where yeah, yeah, yeah. we had where, uh, we're, and if you guys haven't seen it, you can see it on my Instagram, which is radicaleb underscore at the end or on Hilton's, which is 10 performance or on modern samurai project. Uh, we were in a head to head shoot off, uh, single shots on 25 yard steel, uh, from whatever holster. And what's interesting about this video to me, and I know we talked about it at the time, is it illustrates how unimportant gear is when you're shooting well. Because I'm running a revolver with an eight pound trigger and a red dot sight from a competition holster, and you were running a 2011, yeah, you started the 2011 that day, you hadn't switched Mm -hmm. the Glock. Yeah, yeah. And you were running a 2011 from a duty holster and our draw times were almost exactly the same and our, we were neck and neck. And so what I wanted to ask you about is, you know, knowing this, why do you think people get so wrapped up in the gear instead of developing their fundamentals?
1: Yeah, this is always an age old thing. Remember back when I had the blog, Modern Service Weapons, uh, it was the same thing where if I, Uh, did an article, a lengthy in-depth article about training, Uh, it would get crickets and I would post just a random picture of some gear and people would just fawn all over it because to just cut right to it, it is easy to buy a piece of gear, look at gear and it makes you feel good because it's shiny new gear in America. Um, And then, Maybe, maybe. uh, oh, training. Oh, that metric's hard. Oh, that doesn't make me feel good. Let me go back and look at the gear. Mm -hmm. Oh, training's hard. Oh, because I'm not doing this well. Or I got to work hard. I got to get off the the couch and and wipe the cheetah dust off or something. It's basically about what makes people feel good. Um, Training doesn't necessarily make everybody feel good makes us feel good because we're a bunch of weirdos you know we we love the training uh, you know love love punishing ourselves love challenging ourselves uh with the training uh but it's easy to get fixated on the gear because yeah people are like hey Hilton, you're gonna get a revolver or uh, this or that and it's like uh, you know what uh, you know because actually somebody asked us specifically on the facebook for 108 performance and i said look there's nothing wrong with going against my buddy we're evenly matched in skill set it was a good time you know, we were neck and neck. It was just honestly like we were saying, it doesn't matter who was missing less because we, yeah. were, we were pushing it. We, were pushing, we had the, the gas pedal all the way down just to see. And then, you know, when, when, when you got the gas all the way down, sometimes you crash into the wall, sometimes you hit the highway.
0: Right. And training is the best place to do that because right. that lets us set our benchmarks and it lets us understand how well we can perform, especially in an environment like that. I had some guy on uh, YouTube be like, oh, Caleb lost the first round so he could take the easy way and get the win. And I was like, any road that ends with shooting against Hilton is not going to be easy fucking road, my dude. Right. Like, But it is. it's funny because people look at... The gear that we have. They look at you know, a revolver with an acro on it. And I know for an absolute fact that people have seen my gun and seen me shoot that gun on YouTube or on Instagram and stuff like that and gone out and tried to replicate my setup. And the reason I'm good at shooting that gun has nothing to do with the gun itself and everything to do with the 23,000 rounds the training, I shot through yeah. revolvers and the practice yeah. and the reps and all of that. All I've done with by adding a red dot and adding a comp is i've made it I, I i've made it easier to focus on the stuff that is that helps me shoot faster not mm-hmm. i haven't made the gun any shoot any faster and then make accurate. you faster yeah.
1: somehow magically yeah
0: yeah i haven't made myself what's it's the red people i'm trying to think of the best way to explain it stuff like red dots and compensators and that they're not shortcuts to skill what they are is Mm -hmm. they're shortcuts to accessing pre already developed skill like if you're good at shooting and now you add these things to your gun it's going to take away stuff that you had to focus on previously like in the for me for a red dot it's one less thing for me to do because now I'm not looking at my front sight anymore. I'm just looking straight mm-hmm. at the target. So that right. means I We're can take the target dot appears exactly. Which I'll tell well, you so know the internet a mm-hmm. secret. I've been doing that with iron sighted guns for years. Where there's a reason why if you look at my competition guns, I have a big I have a fiber optic front sight and a blacked out rear sight because I can just keep both eyes mm-hmm. open and look through that. Right. And if Just I got a it blurry, all yep, yeah. I have a blurry green dot over the target or a blurry red dot over the target. Hmm, what does right. that sound yeah. like?
1: Yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, I mean, case in point, day two of the class, I brought uh, Glock 19 that uh, minimally modified in the scheme of things. You know, as uh, a minus connector. <laughs> it has a red dot, yeah. And uh, and then what we opened up with, 25-yard B8s, which you'd think, hey, uh, largely stock, yeah you know, minimally modified Glock 19 wow you sure you don't want to get that 2011 back out
0: um, didn't you shoot a 99 so I, on one of those b8s
1: yes yes I did I shot uh, all in the night I shot 98 99 yeah
0: but Hilton the internet told me Glocks aren't accurate
1: well sorry internet
0: <laughs> yeah, the internet also no, told granted, me I'm... go ahead Oh, no, no. Yeah. What did the internet well, also tell you? The internet also told me that revolvers are more inherently accurate than semi-autos. And yes, while I also shot every target in the 90s, my best target of the day was also a 99, which sounds like it probably has a lot more to do with what's articulating the gun yeah. than the gun itself. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, I think people uh, want to buy that performance where there's, there's no shortcut to the performance. You got to put in the time. Uh, put in the effort and there's no way about it. However, I'll offer this one thing uh, because we are after all entrepreneurs and uh, we live in a capitalist market and society. Um, if you hate your gun because I don't know, maybe it's issued to you and you hate it or you bought it because someone told you this was great and you hate it, you're less likely to train with it and therefore less likely to develop uh, skills on it because mm-hmm. you won't shoot it. If you have something that you just love uh, and you just can't like unglue it from your hands, I don't care what it is a revolver with an optic, a Glock, 2011, whatever, and it makes you want to train more, then have at it. You know, uh, you get bored with it and you need something else to spark your interest in training, then I mean, I, I know that's how the market works. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's fine. We got nothing against that. But the end goal, as we we're probably noting here, is that you got to get out and train. I don't care whether you have just that one ride it out and gun, that's whatever it is that, you know, gives you the moral high ground. I only got the one gun. I shoot it all the time. Or you got 30 of them that you shoot barely, but you shoot uh, one of them all the time. You're shooting something all the time.
0: Just well, and that's shoot, the thing, you know, people ask me why I do all this stuff with revolvers. And the, the answer to that question is I like it. And I am far more likely, and I discovered years ago that if I'm, you know, like uh, looking at my calendar or my schedule for the day and I'm like, all right, I've got 15 minutes to dry fire. Am I more likely to pick up a revolver and dry fire that than I am a semi-auto? Turned out the answer was yes. So because I was more likely to do it, because I got more enjoyment from it, I'm like, I'll just stick with this because my desire to train Is higher when I'm training with a platform that I like. Now, I should note for everybody listening, there are days still when I don't wanna dry fire or anything. I don't wanna swing kettlebells. I don't wanna run laps. You know, there's days when I don't wanna do any of it. Those are the most important days for me to do it because unless I'm trying to like rehab an injury or something, I've got time. I've got 20 minutes to dry fire.
1: Yeah, for sure. My AirPod just gave me the
0: warning of running out of battery. Well, that's so, a, well, uh, 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 we're at an hour and 20 minutes. So that, so I feel like an admonishment of people to go, we spent an hour talking about guns and 20 minutes talking about trading. So I think people see, will probably we're, like we're, this
1: podcast. There you go. We 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 did what we just admonished people to wait, wait, what?
0: Yeah, exactly. All right, man. Well, it was great to talk to you. Uh, where can people find you online?
1: All right, people can find me online on the gram at 108performance. At you can find me at my website, www.10-8performance.com. That's the numbers. Uh, also find me on the YouTubes. I've got a growing list of stuff, especially for you 2011 users, a big playlist of topics there, 108 performance. And, uh, and I guess the Facebook too, the Facebook. Got to have them all, right? Yeah. got them all. So, but yeah, hit the website. All the links uh, to those different outlets are there as well. I'm most active on Instagram. So check it
0: out. Awesome. Thank you. All right. And for the listeners out there, make sure you like share, subscribe, tell your friends, cousins, uncles, and in the show notes, I'm going to have links to some merch as well. So you guys can buy shirts that will ship to you at some point from, you know, whatever factory they're made in, in China. I don't know. Thanks for listening everybody. And we will be back next week.